Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards. Bonus episode 7, The State of the Union. So as promised a long time ago in the Chalcedon episodes, this bonus episode will semi-close the loop on the state of things as related to the theological differences brought about by the Council of Chalcedon to our modern times. We had a few Patreon subscribers with the launch of Coptic Voice, so I'm making this episode exclusive for the newcomers. The Patreon page is now under Coptic Voice. So if you'd like to support the podcast, that's what it would be under. Links are available in the description of the episode, website, and social media. Also, to help encourage spreading the word about the podcast and reward passionate listeners who may not be able to support financially, I'm happy to send you the episode if you would be kind enough to put down a review on iTunes or share it on social media. After the Arab conquest, the dialogue between the Chalcedonian hierarchy based in Constantinople and the Miaphysite church, specifically in Egypt, stopped. Not only it was unpractical, as far as the caliphate was, was concerned, it was potential treasonous communication with the enemy, or to riff on modern political discourse, sort of a late antiquity collusion with a hostile state. The Caliphate and Byzantium would be in on and off wars for the next 400 years. And if you count the Crusades and the Ottomans, then really, in war until Constantinople changed over to Istanbul in 1453. And as the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Emperor were usually very close, talking to one meant talking to the other, which looked really, really bad if you were a cop or a Syriac Miaphysite bishop living in the Caliphate. Surely in the narrative, a Coptic Pope would be imprisoned for talking to an Ethiopian delegation who wanted to have a Miaphysite bishop ordained. It would have been even worse if such delegation was from Constantinople instead. So, theologically, for close to 1400 years, the church's position toward each other was frozen in time to just before the conquest, a time of heightened hostility. In Egypt, under the pressure of Islam, all the various offshoots of Miaphysite Christianity, such as the Julianist and similar factions, would be won over by the Coptic Church 
relatively quickly. The Melkite Church would survive for a while, arguably to this day, but by the start of the 20th century, the Christians in Egypt were overwhelmingly in the Coptic Miaphysite Orthodox Church, holding to the Christology of one incarnate nature of Christ that is fully human and fully divine, or, as the slogan of San Cyril, Miaphysesis to Logos to Sarcomeni, the Chalcedonian hierarchy in Constantinople would also go through some major changes. The single energy or monoenergism of Hierakilas would be modified slightly to monosolite or single will under his grandson, which would be abandoned quickly for a traditional Chalcedonian Christology of two natures, two wills, and one fully divine, fully human person. The Western Latin papacy would gradually drift apart from the Greek Byzantines and through some long-term geopolitical changes, a papal delegation would excommunicate the patriarch, giving rise to what came to be known as the Great Schism in 1054. This separated Latin Catholics based on Rome from Eastern Orthodoxy based on Constantinople. Then, 600 years later, Martin Luther will come along and completely upend European Christianity, giving rise to the Protestants. Despite all these major changes, the Christology of Chalcedon were accepted in those churches as true orthodoxy. Two natures, two wills, one fully divine, fully human person. In the Miaphysite camp, dialogue between the different churches was difficult, so different practices eventually developed, but the union based on Miaphysite Christology held up. After two world wars and the reshaping of the Middle East by colonial powers by the 1950s, there was five Miaphysite hierarchies. Coptic in Egypt, Jacobite in Syria, the Armenian Church, the Ethiopian Church, and a small church in India. The largest by far was Ethiopia. Compromising more than half of the Miaphysites was the Coptic Church at a distant second, was numerically about 25% of the Miaphysite Christians. But the Church of Ethiopia only gained autocephaly or the right to ordain its own bishops from the Coptic Church in 1959. So, the Coptic Pope held major sway in the Miaphysite world for much of the 20th century. This was essentially the state of the Union in the world post-World War II, which is to say, little understanding, no dialogue, and the word heresy being thrown around by everybody directed at everyone else. Very specific missionary efforts were directed at the Copts in Egypt to undermine the Coptic Church. And in return, the Coptic hierarchy responded by some extreme measures, going as far as one Coptic Pope instructing the faithful to forego formal education for girls, as the only schools for girls that was available at that time were started by missionaries. 
Fortunately, in the same time, things like the United Nations, globalism, and very importantly for our discussion, communism were reshaping the world. There was just no way the churches could avoid talking to each other, no matter how much they tried. Not to mention two very charismatic and highly influential Coptic popes, Pope Carolus or Cyril VI and Pope Shenouda III, appreciated the world and quickly took advantage of it. Now, to be clear, people did talk to each other before the elevation of Pope Carolus in 1959 and after the passing away of Pope Shenouda in 2012, but I'm focusing this episode and this period for a couple of reasons. One, it's so by far the most progress since maybe the Hinoticon of Zeno. Two, enough time have passed so that all the facts have been published and verified by academia, relatively free from the polemical nature of these things. Also, given the nature of this podcast and the constraints of time, the focus of this episode will be the dialogue between the Miaphysite Church, specifically the ones that the Coptic Church participated in, and the other churches. There have been lots of dialogue between Eastern Orthodoxy and the Babacy, but that's perhaps for a different podcast. Now, the official communication between the churches drops the label Miaphysite, Chalcedonian, and similar labels that highlight things other than Orthodoxy. The names used in those communications, which I will use in this episode, are the Oriental Orthodox Church for the Miaphysite Churches and the Eastern Orthodox Church for the Chalcedonian Churches. Got it? Oriental and Eastern. Hopefully it does not get too confusing. The story begins in the upheaval brought about in Eastern Europe on modern Turkey around World War I. To make a long story short, something called the League of Nations came out of it, the unsuccessful version of the modern United Nations. This inspired the Patriarch of Constantinople, who was under a lot of pressure and stuck in the middle between the Caliphate of the Ottomans and the Orthodox Caesars of Russia, to call for a similar venture among the churches, a League of Churches, so to speak, Two Protestant organizations, one Lutheran in Sweden and one Episcopal in the US, took notice and started laying the groundwork for such an organization. It took another 20 years, in the conclusion of World War II, for the League of the Churches to come to life, and it was called the World Council of Churches. Now, the World Council of Churches has a fascinating history, and its relationship with communism, the KGB, and the Catholic Church can have its own dedicated 100-plus episode series. But what is important to us is that it brought Orthodox theologian from the two families together in a non-hostile environment. Specifically, a certain Nicolas Nisiodos from Greece a theologian, an Olympian, and a professional basketball coach, sorry if I messed up the pronunciation, and Paul Varghese, 
Litter, a bishop in the Indian Miaphysite church. There, it quickly became clear to them, just as I hope it is clear to you as you have listened to this podcast, that both sides are really saying the same exact thing Christology-wise, but using different terms. Now, these guys, Nicholas and Paul, did something very, very difficult, and that's why I had to mention their names. They deserve to be in a historical record. They convinced the Oriental and the Eastern Orthodox hierarchies to sit down and talk about the differences in an informal setting and maybe take some discrete steps toward union. Yeah, they went to their bishops and somehow convinced them that what the great theologians of the 5th and the 6th century, Severus, Achaeus, Sergius, and Saba, could not do, they will be able to do it now. What the great Justinian, Zeno, and Heraclius utterly failed at, they, under the shadow of communism and Islam, now could do it. Both of these great men have passed away, but I put up links to their Wikipedia pages on the website and social media. I would like to dedicate this episode to them. Paul Varghese, or Bishop Bolus Margregorius, and Nicholas Nisiodos. Do not forget their names. But anyway, their efforts culminated in an informal meeting in Denmark in August 1964. The official published result was, and I'm quoting word for word here, in our common study of the Council of Chalcedon, the well-known phrase used by our common father in Christ, St. Cyril of Alexandria, Miaphysesis, or may hypostasis to seo locus sarcomeni with its implications was at the center of our conversation and the essence of the christological dogma we found ourselves in full agreement through the different terminologists used by each other we saw the same truths expressed now this is a major breakthrough since the arab conquest the air quotes, correct view in Eastern Orthodoxy was that the Miaphysites were heretics who followed Eutychius in saying that the divinity of Christ swallowed his humanity, i.e. Monophysites. And the correct view in Oriental Orthodoxy was that the Chalcedonians were Kryptonistorians who divided the person of Christ. All of the sudden, this was all thrown out of the window. And to put it as the published memo did, quote, we found ourselves in full agreement. To be fair, so, the meeting was dominated with academics and theologians, with only one Eastern Orthodox bishop and a couple of Oriental Orthodox ones. The Coptic Church was actually represented by a physician, which is not surprising at all for anyone who is familiar with how the Coptic community work. So, plenty of work needed to be done to make this breakthrough more than income paper, and a second informal meeting was organized to get more bishops on board. Three years later, this meeting was organized in England with more attendance. Again, everyone agreed that the faiths between the two families are the same. As the official documentation put it, 
quote. Those who speak in terms of two do not thereby divide or separate. Those who speak of terms of one do not thereby commingle or confuse. That without division, without separation of those who say two, and that without change, without confusion of those who say one, need to be specially underlined in order that we may understand each other. Also, the meeting put forward a couple of concrete steps to take as well and started organizing for the next meeting. This meeting saw the attendance of Bishop Samuel from the Coptic Church, who served as the connection between the Coptic Church and the outside world, so clearly progress was being made. The third meeting happened in 1970 in Geneva was more of the same. Quote, we have become convinced that our agreement extended beyond Christological doctrine to embrace other aspects also of the authentic tradition. Also, we have not discussed all matters in detail. But for the first time, a section was dedicated to the differences between the two families. By far, the two most important issues in those differences was what to do about the church councils and about the excommunicated, air quotes, saints. Naturally, the Oriental Orthodox were not part of the three councils after Chalcedon and did not consider them binding in any way. They were happy to drop Ephesus too, or the Robber Council, and keep only the first three, Nicaea, Constantinople, and Ephesus. For the Eastern Orthodox, however, the seven councils, the three before Chalcedon, Chalcedon, and the three others after it, were an integral part of God's plan of the church and cannot be compromised a bit. Additionally, those councils excommunicated Severus, Dioscorus, Timothy the Cat, and a host of other Miaphysite saints. The question that naturally arose was, can we just ignore this excommunication? Can be delifted? And who exactly has the authority to lift them? Still, the meeting ended with a promise to try and work toward the solution and organize an official meeting between the churches, hopefully with the attendance of the heads of the churches. This meeting also had a great attendance and with several bishops from both sides. An official meeting was on the horizon, just a couple of details to be hashed out. Those details were finalized in the fourth unofficial meeting in Ethiopia, just a year after the third meeting in 1971. It was entirely dedicated to try and solve the problems of the councils and the excommunications. It was agreed that union cannot be achieved while one church celebrates a person as a saint and the other sees him as an excommunicated heretic. Then, it was suggested that the anathemas from both sides should be lifted in the same time. And as far as who's a saint and who's not, this is not important to decide right now. As the statement put it, quote, We agree that once the anathemas against certain persons cease to be effective, 
there is no need to require the recognition as a saint by those who previously anesthetized them. Different autocephalous churches have differing liturgical calendars and lists of saints. There is no need to impose uniformity in this matter. The place of these persons in the future United Church can be discussed and decided after the Union. As far as who can lift those anathemas, well, the statement was a bit ambiguous. Quote, who has the authority to lift these anathemas? We agree that the Church has been given authority by her Lord both to bind and to loose. The Church that imposed the anathemas for pastoral or other reasons of that time has also the power to lift them for the same pastoral or other reasons of our time. This is part of the stewardship of the Church. But does the Church here mean another ecumenical council? A local council slash synod? The head of the Church by himself? What happens if the Churches within the families had different opinions? One calls for an ecumenical council, while one sees that the patriarch opinion is sufficient. I hope you can see the problem here. Nonetheless, the meeting in Ethiopia made some good points about plenty of historical precedents with the ease of lifting anathemas simply by the head of the church or a local synod. And then it led the matter to be fully decided on when the churches meet officially. It took another unofficial meeting and close to 15 years of constant back and forth until, finally, the first official meeting took place in Switzerland in 1985. The statement from this conference was brief, but it seems that the conversation was taken on very seriously by Bob Shinoda in Egypt personally, and he wanted to make it happen. Thus, one of his closest aides, Bishop Beshoi, was dispatched to Switzerland and entrusted to organize an official meeting in Egypt itself, with the personal involvement of Pope Shenouda. And this is where things started moving really fast. The premier Coptic theologian of the 20th century, Father Tadros Yaob Malati, also got on board, and an official meeting on the monastery of St. Bishoy in June 1989, took place with Pope Shenouda pushing the envelope. A long statement of faith was then published, essentially outlining every single Christological angle of Chalcedon and its aftermath. I have posted the statement on the website, as this is as official as you can go with these things. But as all other meetings, both sides agreed that the Christology and the face of the two churches were essentially the same. What about the problems? Well, diplomatically, subcommittees were established to meet regularly and try and find a solution. They met over the next year, and very quickly, a third official meeting took place in Geneva. In there, the problems of the anathemas were posed, and it was agreed on that, quote, the anathemas and the condemnation of the past that now divide us 
should be lifted by the churches in order that the last obstacle to the full union and communion of our families can be removed by the grace and power of God. Both families agree that the lifting of anathemas and condemnations will be consummated on the basis that the councils and the fathers previously condemned are not heretical, i.e., to translate the diplomatic language. The Oriental Orthodox Church would be willing to accept that Chalcedon is not heretical. In return, and in the same time, the Eastern Orthodox Church would lift the anathemas of the excommunicated Miaphysites in later councils, Severus and Dioscorus first and foremost. Both sides understood that this does not mean that Chalcedon would be a binding ecumenical council for the Oriental Orthodox Church, or that Severus would be considered a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, it really just meant dropping the problematic, heretical labels. More importantly, it issued very specific steps on what should happen next, and they are 1. The Eastern Orthodox should lift all anathemas and condemnations against all Oriental Orthodox councils and fathers whom they have condemned in the past. 2. The Oriental Orthodox should at the same time lift all the anathemas and condemnations against all the Orthodox councils and fathers whom they have condemned in the past. 3. The manner in which the anathemas are to be lifted should be decided by the churches individually. This last recommendation is ultimately what collapsed the whole thing. Pope Shenouda was in two months summoned a special session of the Coptic Synod, and they ratified the agreement and sent a letter to the Eastern Orthodox representative. The Coptic Church has put forward that once the Eastern Orthodox ratified the agreement, then the 1500 years problem of Chalcedon would finally be solved. Unfortunately, the agreement was never ratified by the Eastern Orthodox. The reasons behind this is a bit of a mystery, as no one have ever put down the reasons why on paper, except the Eastern Orthodox monks of Mount Asus. Mount Asus is essentially a very special monastic enclave in Greece, where they maintain political independence and in theory, answer only to the patriarch in Constantinople. But really, for the most part, they do their own thing. The reasons why they opposed it comes down to the fact that lifting the anathemas undermined the spiritual authority of the ecumenical councils. Both Orthodox churches upheld the theological belief that the Holy Spirit guides the church through those councils. So, according to the monks, if we disregard the anathemas, we are either opposing the Holy Spirit or we are saying that the Holy Spirit was not there. They, as far as I can tell, are the only people who put their opposition in writing. But still, while the monks at Asus are spiritually influential, they are a very tiny minority of Eastern Orthodoxy. And on their own, they cannot explain the dying of the agreement. 
The other reason, and proceed with caution here, as this is partially speculation on my part, is the collapse of communist Russia. Going through the names of all the folks who signed those agreements, the Russian Orthodox Church representation was either light or non-existent. Which makes sense, as the USSR was not very big in organized religion. But at the time of the finalization of the agreement, in late 1990, early 1991, the USSR was dying quickly, and the previously absent Russian church was coming to life. When Soviet Russia finally collapsed completely in December 1991, almost overnight, the Russians were back big time in orthodoxy and all those agreements that were carefully written and disseminated became irrelevant. There is a super complex dynamic between the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Russian Church, where the Russians are the largest and most influential, but historically and spiritually, the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople led Orthodoxy. This dynamic is playing out right now in the Church of Ukraine, where they're trying to break away from the Church of Russia and being fought over between the Russian Church and the Ecumenical Patriarchy. But that's a bit off topic. For us, whatever the reasons may be, in the end of the day, the agreement was never ratified. And all this careful work over 40 years of meetings came to nothing. Well, to be fair, I shouldn't say nothing. The 1500-year cycle of hostility was broken, which is a big deal and should be celebrated. And in Egypt, Bob Shenouda was able to make practical arrangement with the Alexandrian Eastern Orthodox Church, historically the Melkite Church, where it came to marriages, baptisms, and things of that sort. The State of the Union is better than it ever been in the last 15 centuries. Also, still, calling it a union is a stretch. Finally, to end this week's episode, I would like to just briefly mention the other serious dialogue with the other churches, notably the Catholic Church. Similar to the Eastern Orthodox, the dialogue between the churches was extensive and took many years. Eventually, a common Christological declaration was reached, but things kind of stopped after that for other issues. Specifically, the dialogue with the Catholic Church really was centered about recognizing each other's baptisms and eliminating hostility with missionary activities in Egypt. This dialogue was eventually culminated in a visit by Pope John Paul II with Pope Shenouda in Egypt in 2000, where he promised, quote, We must avoid anything that might lead once again to distrust and discord. We have agreed to avoid any form of missionary activity or methods and attitude opposed to the necessity of Christian love and what should characterize the relationship between churches. Very recently, in the last couple of years, a repeat visit happened with Pope Francis to the current Coptic Pope, Pope Tawadros, 
a declaration was signed recognizing each other's baptism. Also, it immediately became mired in controversy, and the polemic material for and against are at this point way more any reasonable historical discussion. In other words, I would love to talk about it. It is just not history yet. Thank you for listening. Farewell, and until next week.